now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. So we're finishing up this morning uh, what's known as Jesus' farewell discourse, which is John chapters 14, 15, and 16. And it's Jesus' final instruction for his people before he leaves the world. When I was a student in Philadelphia, um, my first year there, I spent a good bit of time traveling up to New York City to visit a couple of my friends who lived in Manhattan. And the first time I ever went was the first time I had visited New York City. I grew up in the panhandle of Texas, and so going to New York was literally a different, I mean, it was just a different world for me. I'd never seen anything like it. And thankfully, for the first day, I was there for two and a half days, and for the first day, I had my friend with me the whole time. And my friend taught me how to use the subway system and taught me sort of how to find my way around and what to do and what not to do. And then my friend on day two turned me loose. And this is before the days of iPhones and apps. Now you can just download an app and find a whole map to the subway grid. But I didn't have any of those things. And so I was completely left to my own devices to get into the subway, to go in the right direction, and hopefully to make it back to the place where my friend lived in one piece at the end of the day. And I remember thinking, Jesus, help me. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it through this. Obviously, I did make it, not without a few bumps and bruises in between, but When my friend left me in a city of, you know, 20 million people, I remember feeling the distinct feeling of, I'm all by myself here. And that's exactly the place that the disciples find themselves in spiritually here in John 16. Jesus has been telling them for two chapters now, although this is all in one sitting in the upper room on Thursday night, he's been telling them, I'm about to leave you. It's going to be hard, but take courage, be comforted, don't let your hearts be troubled, but the disciples are troubled and worried nonetheless. They're wondering, how are we going to know which direction to go in without Jesus to guide us? How are we going to find our way? Just like I wondered how I was going to find my way in New York without my friend, the disciples are wondering how they're going to find their way without Jesus. And here in these verses, Jesus gives another answer. He says, you are going to find your way when I'm gone because I'm going to send to you the helper. The helper is a word for the Holy Spirit. And so the theme of our passage this morning is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus here tells us that the Holy Spirit is the helper and the guide for his people sent from Jesus to move the mission of God forward in the world through the church. 
So here's how I want to summarize the main idea of these verses for you this morning. The ministry of Jesus continues in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the point of the text. The ministry of Jesus continues in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we look through these verses, we can divide it into three parts. And here's the three parts. First, the Spirit comes from Jesus. Second, the Spirit convicts the world. And then third, the Spirit guides the church. So those are your three points that will help us hopefully understand this passage better. So here we go. First, we see that the Spirit comes from Jesus. Look there in verse 5 of chapter 16. Jesus says, I'm going back to him who sent me. That is God the Father. And then he says in verse 6, because I've said these things to you that I'm going away, sorrow, sorrow has filled your heart. They're about to have to say goodbye. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate saying goodbye to people. And so typically I just don't do it. So if you ever leave San Antonio and Luke disappears when it's time to say bye at your farewell party. It's not because I don't love you. It's just I'm socially awkward in that area. And uh, saying goodbye has always been hard for me. I struggle to do it because I'm a guy and I feel all the feels and I don't know what to do with my emotions. And so I just avoid the situation entirely. I'd rather just kind of pull the band-aid off. So saying goodbye is a difficult thing. And the disciples are about to have to say goodbye to Jesus here. And they feel sad about it. They feel sorrowful about it. But Jesus, in response to that, he reads their emotional life. He says, I know you're sorrowful. I know you're troubled. But, verse 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. It is to your advantage that I go away. And notice how Jesus emphasizes that statement. He says, I tell you the truth. Anytime Jesus says something like that, you know that what he's going to say next is really, really important. He says, it's good for you that I am leaving. Now, why is that? Well, look at what he says next. He says, because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the departure of Jesus means that Jesus will now send the helper, who is the Holy Spirit. And this is such a good thing in Jesus' eyes that Jesus himself says it will be better for the people of God than his physical presence with them would be. Now thinking about that theologically for a second, that makes sense. Jesus is able in his earthly ministry, to minister to only the people who were within physical proximity of him because he's a human, after all. He's physically fully man, and so he's bound to the particular location that he's in because he's a man. But when the Spirit comes, the Spirit is going to be able to universally apply the work and ministry and love of Jesus to the people of Jesus all over the world because the Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere poured out on the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is localized, but the Spirit is not. And so what you need to hear here that's very important is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit will continue the ministry of Jesus in even more powerful and magnificent ways than the things we read about in Jesus' ministry. Other parts of the Bible show this. I love in particular, in the book of Acts. If you turn there for just a second, look at the very first verse, Acts chapter 1. Now, Acts comes right after John, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are about Jesus' earthly ministry, and then Acts is about the story of the church after the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people in Acts chapter 2, and how the church begins to grow and expand. And look at what Luke, who wrote Acts, says in Acts 1.1. 1, 1. 
In the first book, O Theophilus, that's the Gospel of Luke. So in the Gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Implying that now in Acts, in the outpouring of the Spirit, he's going to tell Theophilus and us what Jesus continues to do. Jesus is beginning his ministry in the Gospels, and in the church, in our age, and in our lives, Jesus continues his ministry via the pathway or the the avenue of the Holy Spirit. So, the Spirit comes from Jesus, and the Spirit continues among us the ministry of Jesus. Now, what does that mean for you? Why does that matter? Well, I love how Jesus puts it A couple of chapters earlier, in John 14, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Listen, here's the truth. This world is like a huge cosmic orphanage. We are all orphaned from God, our true father, as a result of our sin. And we all spend our lives in various ways trying to get out of the orphanage. Uh, Charles Dickens wrote a book. You might have read it back in high school or you might have never heard of it or you might have a vague memory of it. It's called Oliver Twist. There might be a movie about it. I'm sure it's not nearly as good as the book. I think I can say that even though I haven't seen it. Uh, But Oliver Twist is a book about a little boy named Oliver who grows up in London and he's an orphan who early on in his life lives in an orphanage that is just a terrible place. And early in the book, perhaps the most famous part of the whole story is the story where Oliver draws the short straw among all the other orphans and has to go ask for more food from the people who are in charge of the orphanage because all of the children there are just terribly malnourished. And when he goes and asks for more food, Oliver gets beaten and mistreated, etc. And so that's sort of the final straw for him. And he decides at that point that he's going to get away and not be an orphan anymore. And so Oliver escapes from the orphanage and ends up on the streets of London where he meets uh, some really cool street urchin kids and they introduce him to this man named Fagin. And Fagin pretends at the, at the beginning of the story to, uh, to really care about Oliver and the other kids, but it turns out that Fagin is, is like one of these kingpin mobster type people and just uses the children in his retinue to steal and to continue his evil empire. And Dickens, really, Charles Dickens is using this as social commentary, and he's making the point that Oliver goes from one form of being an orphan in the orphanage to another form of being an orphan on the streets. Oliver can't escape the system. Now, Charles Dickens doesn't end the story the way the gospel ends the story, because that is telling you the story of the gospel via narrative. The real truth is that we are all orphans and we can't get out of it. It's like we're in, each of us, a debtor's prison and we cannot ever pay off what we owe. And we just go from one form of orphanhood to another form of orphanhood in our lives. But the point that the gospel tries to tell us again and again and again is that we can't pull ourselves out of our orphan state on our own. The Spirit of God, rather, has to come and rescue us and bring us back into the family of God. And that's what the good news of the gospel is. It says that Jesus came and accomplished redemption for orphans like you and like me in his death and in his resurrection. 
And then the Spirit of God comes and he applies the redemption of Jesus to our hearts. He gives new birth. He enables us to believe. He sheds the light of the gospel in our minds. He gives us, as the prophets say, hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. So the point is that Jesus doesn't leave us in the cosmic orphanage that is our lives. He sends us, rather, the Spirit to pull us out. The Spirit is a helper. The Spirit is a rescuer. The Spirit is a guide. God through the Spirit, breaks us out of the orphanage and adopts us into his family and makes us heirs with Jesus all through the grace and ministry of the Spirit. That's why it's a good thing, Jesus says, that the Spirit comes. It's the only way for you. It's the only way for me to experience the freedom, the hope, and the life that Jesus offers us in the gospel and that we read about in the scripture. So the Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus. He's sent by Jesus. So when the Spirit comes, Jesus tells us next what he's going to do. In other words, the rest of these verses answer the question, how? How will the Holy Spirit continue the ministry of Jesus? And that's what Jesus tells us in verses 8 through 15. Two things he tells us the Spirit is going to do. And so, secondly, let's look at that. The Spirit will convict the world. That's the second point and the first thing that the Spirit will do to continue Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 8. When he, that's the Spirit, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then verses 9, 10, and 11 elaborate on that very compacted statement. But here's the big point. Jesus here is saying that a part of the work of the Holy Spirit, continuing the ministry of Jesus, is to convict the world concerning what is really wrong with the world, concerning what's really right with the world, and concerning who is going to win. The Spirit comes and he convinces people what's really wrong, what's really right, and who's going to win. First, he convicts, he convicts concerning what's really wrong. That's what verse 9 means, where Jesus says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So listen, the Holy Spirit is going to come into the world. He has come into the world. He might be doing that right this very second. And he convicts people who are far away from the real God that their real problem, that what is really wrong in the world and in their lives is unbelief. A failure to see Jesus of Nazareth for who he really is. Jesus here says unbelief is the chief sin. Unbelief is the meta-sin. Unbelief is the sin that in one way or another causes all other sins. You see that all through the scriptures. Early, early in the Bible, you see that in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 3, the evil one comes and he tempts Eve and Adam. And the basis of the temptation is this. You shouldn't trust or believe that God is going to do for you what he said he's going to do for you. Don't believe that God is good, and don't believe God's threat to judge you if you disobey his law. Don't believe God's promise to be your God if you will submit to him and live your life for him and obey him. Satan is tempting them on the basis of what they believe to be true about God. Now, Adam and Eve failed to believe. They don't believe that God is good, 
They don't believe that God loves them. They buy into the sa- Satan's lie. And what happens? Well, everything gets messed up. Their relationship with God is messed up. There is now enmity and hostility between man and between God. They also have enmity with one another. I mean, what do they do immediately? Satan comes to Adam and says, I mean, not Satan, God comes to Adam and says, Adam, what happened here? And what does Adam do? He blames. He blames his wife. She did it. Look to her, God. And then God says, okay, Eve, what do you have to say for yourself? And Eve says, I'm not guilty. The serpent made me do it. So it messes up everything. It causes rupture in God and man's relationship and rupture between Adam and Eve and rupture between all of us. And it also causes shame and guilt and fear. They hide from God. They're aware of their nakedness. What that means is that they now know that they, they now know the idea of shame. All of this comes from the fact that they fail to believe that God is who he says he is. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you, if you want to really understand the gospel, you have to understand first that your main problem is your failure to believe. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your lack of belief is the main issue? If you want to know Jesus Christ and grow in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that that is your deepest problem. Unbelief is the root cause of all of your issues. Now, that's not to say that your issues aren't complex and don't have a multitude of causes, but the root, in one way or another, is your sin and your unbelief. That's what Jesus says. Your biggest problem is not what's happening to you, it's what's happening inside of you. And no one can ever really see that until the Spirit comes and convicts them of it. That's what Jesus is getting at. He convicts the world about what's really wrong. He also convicts the world about what is really right. That's what verse 10 is about. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. Now that's a bit of a difficult verse, but that phrase there, I go to the Father, is one of the ways in John that Jesus describes his career, his ministry, his death, resurrection, and ascension. So Jesus is saying here, listen, my career is the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. The best thing that has ever happened is that Jesus came into the world as the missionary of God, and he obeyed the Father's commission to him, and he went to the cross and the resurrection in order to be the atonement for the world's sins and the conqueror of death. That is the highlight of human history. So the Holy Spirit convicts people that our biggest problem is unbelief and that the only solution is the work of Jesus. We see this every week in John, and I want you to hear this and believe this. Again, none of us can repair the breach in our own lives. None of us can make our way back to God on our own. None of us can cleanse and remove our own guilt. All of that takes the work of Jesus. It takes the death of Jesus to forgive us. It takes the resurrection of Jesus to restore us. It takes grace. Jesus has to do it because we can't do it. That's what the Spirit convicts us of. He points us to our own sin, and he points us gloriously to the only solution found in Jesus. Thirdly, he convicts concerning who will really win. Verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. So the Holy Spirit comes and ministers by convicting the world that Satan has been overthrown in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us in John 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, the devil, be cast out when I am lifted up, when I'm crucified, 
when I'm lifted up from the earth. So the Spirit tells us the truth that God's arch enemy, Satan, who stood behind the world's wicked betrayal and murder of the Son of God, is now to be judged and will one day finally be defeated. Listen to this quote. I think I've got it for you on the, on the wall behind me from Frederick Bruner. He writes, The world is asked to believe through the church's spirit-inspired testimony the most fundamental of all the supremest court decisions. The satanic ruler of this world has been decisively sentenced and condemned by history's two central events, by Jesus' crucifixion and by Jesus' resurrection. Amen. The Spirit is the one who convicts the world. So real quick, it should be clear then, given what Jesus says here about the Spirit, listen, that the only reason anyone ever believes any of this is because of the Holy Spirit. The only reason that you are a Christian, if you're a Christian, is because the Holy Spirit has irresistibly and powerfully and graciously been on the march directly into your heart in a way that you can't comprehend or challenge or resist. He gives you new life. He gives you new birth. He opens up your eyes. He awakens you to see Jesus for who he really is. By the way, that's why we here at this church try to make it one of our core and chief values to be about, above all else, the centrality of the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is talked about and preached about and prayed about and discussed. And as all those things are happening, the Holy Spirit marches through the message of the gospel given to us in the scripture and wakes people up from death into life. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're about. That's why this church was started. So if you're here, you need to know if you're newer to the church or new for the first time today that the main thing that we're about is proclaiming the good news and then letting the Spirit do what only the Spirit can do, and that's convict you. Convict you of your biggest problem, sin and unbelief. Convict you that Jesus is the only solution and convict you that Jesus is going to win. That's what we're about. The Spirit convicts the world. Thirdly, the Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus in that he guides the church. We see that in verse 12 all the way through verse 15. So let's look at that quickly and then we'll wrap up. There's two things the Spirit guides the church into. First look at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into what? Into all the truth. Okay, I need you to stick with me here for a second. We've got to do a little bit of biblical exegesis and interpretation. When Jesus is speaking here and he says he will guide you, who is the you? Someone answer. The disciples. That's right. The people that he was speaking to then in the original context or the disciples, the 12 disciples, well, 11, Judas is already gone. So the 12 disciples, Jesus says, I'm going to guide you into the truth via the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus promises these men that the Spirit, verse 13, will say to them exactly what the Spirit hears from the Father and the Son. Okay, so Jesus is making this promise to his disciples, the ones who would become the first messengers of the news of what happens to Jesus. The Spirit will decide, uh, uh, guide these disciples into the truth, okay? So how did that happen? 
That happened, we see, about, we see it in Acts, and we also see it mainly in this. The main way that the Spirit guided them into the truth was to ensure that they wrote down via eyewitness testimony exactly what had happened in the life and death and resurrection and ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. We see Peter, one of the 12 disciples, who was there when Jesus said this in one of his letters, 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this, listen to this, 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter here is self-consciously reflecting here on the writing of the New Testament, of which he is a part. And he's saying that God is the one ultimately ensuring that what is written down is what he wants written down. Peter and the other authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit guided the apostles into truth through their authorship of the New Testament. And that is what gives the New Testament its authority. But listen, that also matters for you. How? Here's why it matters for you. You know that the main and primary way that the Spirit guides you into the truth is through the guidance of the Scripture itself. The way to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit is to follow the guidance of the Scripture. Because the Scripture speaks to us, or the Spirit speaks to us through the Word. That's how He guides us. Ancient sailors and navigators would use, famously, constellations to find their way in the sea at night. And most important of all those constellations, or of all the stars, is the North Star. The sailors would use the North Star to discern which direction they were going in and which direction they should continue in. Jesus is saying here that the Bible is our North Star. It is our only rule of faith and practice. It is how we follow the leadings and the promptings of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit can prompt you in other ways as well. But those promptings are never going to contradict the Scripture. And they'll always be subordinate to the scripture. So the spirit might dial you in to the beauty of God's creation and cause you to worship God. The spirit might convict you of something through a conversation you're having with someone. The spirit might, through singing and corporate worship, use a song to really stir up your affections and love for Jesus Christ and convict you of something that you need to confess and repent of. The spirit works in all those ways, but So, the way that we follow the guidance of the Spirit is by following the guidance of the Scriptures. So, the first way the Spirit guides His church is through guiding us into the truth. And the truth is primarily seen in the Scripture. The second way the Spirit guides us, or the second thing the Spirit guides us to, is to glorify Jesus Himself. Look at verse 14. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is a spotlight ministry. The Spirit is chiefly about putting the spotlight not on himself but on Jesus. The Spirit makes much of Jesus. The Spirit lives to make Jesus the Son known. 
And so that's a prime way for you as a follower of Jesus to discern if a given message or ministry is of the Spirit or not. 